0: In Matthew chapter 24 and 25, we've been looking at all the events culminating in leading up to the second coming of Jesus Christ. These two chapters are commonly, commonly called the Olivet Discourse. As Jesus left the temple area, went to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples asked him a question Lord, what will be the sign of your coming, and when will these things happen? And so Jesus began to describe what will take place during the great tribulation period and the second coming of Christ. As I've said before, the great tri- before the great tribulation, the rapture of the church will take place. So the believer doesn't go through this seven-year period of God's wrath being poured out upon the earth. Uh, only those who have not trusted Jesus Christ will go through what's called this great tribulation which will begin after, at some point after the rapture of the church and the restrainer being removed from the earth, the restrainer being the Holy Spirit, being removed from the earth. And that's when a man will rise up who will be a global leader who brings peace to the world. And he will bring three and a half years of peace, even in the Middle East, between Jews and Muslims. However, right in the middle of that seven-year period, at that three and a half-year mark, uh, he will go into the temple, he will stop this, the temple sacrifices. This is what Jesus called the abomination of desolation in verse 15 of chapter 24. This global leader, he will proclaim himself to be God, and he will demand to, to the world to worship him as God and to receive his mark. Otherwise, you will be persecuted. This event will kick off the second half of the seven-year great tribulation, where there will be even more devastations, and that those will take place terrestrially, but there will also be things that happen celestially in the heavens, where Jesus tells us the sun will be darkened, the moon will no longer give us light, and the stars will fall from the sky. Then in verse 30 of chapter 24, Jesus Christ returns, and he will pierce the darkness with his glory, and in Revelation chapter 1 verse 7, it tells us every eye will see him, Now, after Jesus spoke about all these things leading up to his coming, Jesus answered his disciples' question of, Lord, when will these things happen? He said, well, of the day and the hour, no one will know. No one knows. He says, you'll know the season. It'll be like the fig tree that's putting forth its leaves, and that's how you know summer is near. It's coming. It's close. You'll know the season, but you won't know the exact time. So you need to be ready. Be ready, And as we come to chapter 25, Jesus continues this same Olivet Discourse. Just because we have chapters and verses written down in our Bibles, that doesn't mean anything has necessarily changed. This is the same Olivet Discourse Jesus has been sharing, and he now gives a parable to his disciples and to us concerning the importance of being ready. Now, this is commonly called the parable of the ten virgins, and the setting is that of a Jewish wedding. Now, weddings, they're the highlights of life. I mean, there's such a a celebration. I've had the privilege of presiding over many weddings. I love performing weddings. They're always such a joyous occasion. Now, in the United States, you know, in a typical wedding here in the U.S., you have the ceremony, and they exchange vows during the ceremony. Then you eat a meal or some refreshments. You eat the cake. You hang out with family and friends. And then the bride and groom take off. They go on their honeymoon. Not so in a Jewish wedding. Certainly not in ancient times. There were three phases uh, to the Jewish wedding, and this background is going to help you understand this parable. First, there was the engagement. The engagement was done when the children were quite young, just little kids. And it wasn't done by the boy and the girl. It was done by the father and the father. The father of the bride and the father of the groom, they make a contract. And they make a deal, and then a gift was given, the dowry or the bride price. The children had no contact or say in the matter at all. They, would, they wouldn't even find out till later who it is that they would be marrying. So they certainly learned very early on that, that love and marriage is a commitment, not just a feeling. That's how the arrangement was made. Well, the second phase was the betrothal period, which happened about a year before the actual wedding itself. About a year before the wedding feast, the young man and the young woman would enter into a contract. They would say their vows to each other during the betrothal, just like marriage vows. And in every way, it was like they were getting married, except there was no physical intimacy during that year from the betrothal to the actual wedding feast. And they could not even separate unless there was a legal divorce filed. In fact, if the man were to die during the betrothal period, she was called a widow who, was, who is a virgin. That's a biblical phrase. That's someone who was betrothed, but then their husband-to-be died, so he, she's now a widow who is a virgin. But during that year, the idea was that's time given to the, the, the man to get his house to get everything in order his his plows he plows his fields he gets everything ready so he can show that he's going to be able to provide for his wife that he was taking in so you have the engagement you have the betrothal and third and this is the background of the parable was the wedding feast itself now the wedding feast involved everyone in the community Now, all the guests that are invited, they're waiting at the groom's house for the arrival of the bride and groom. They don't know when this is going to happen. The groom and his groomsmen, they take off, they go over to the bride's house when they're ready. Of course, they wait till they're ready. And then they get over there when they're ready, the, the, the bride is ready, the bridesmaids are ready, and from there, they would begin this parade all throughout the, the, the community, from her house back to the, to the groom's house, but taking the longest route possible to go through town. That would get everyone in town the opportunity to say, congratulations, Mazel and throw a few coins and give them money and that sort of thing. So the, gro- the groom and the bride, that's where you get your presence during, during that little parade through town. But once they got back to the groom's house, that's when the festivities began. There wasn't a honeymoon for the first week. Not yet. Instead, there was a feast. And for a week, the couple did not consummate their marriage. Uh, they had an open house and a feast for seven days. People would come in, congratulate them, you know, hug them. They'd have meals. And they would do that for seven days after seven days, the best man would come and take the the hand of the groom and the hand of the bride and place their hands together. That was the cue for everyone to leave. Okay, party's over. It's time for everybody to go. This is their first time to be alone together. So everyone would leave and they would consummate their marriage and share their life together. Now, on that parade through, through, the house, through the town, from house to house, from the house of the bride to the house of the groom, it was often done at night. So torches were lit, uh, and the torch, and it says here in our passage that we're going to read, it's a lamp, but it's really a torch. It was a long stick, and on top of it was, a, was like metal mesh, a wire mesh apparatus with cloth stuffed inside. This olive oil was soaked in that cloth, and they would light it up. And that would light up the night sky so they could go from one end of town to the other. Then the attendants, the women included, along with the torches, they would have these little flasks of olive oil. So when that lamp would start to dim, well, they would just pour on a little more oil in it, and the flame would be renewed. That's the background of what you're about to read Jesus takes this beautiful picture that everyone was familiar with, the Jewish wedding ceremony, and he likens it to the kingdom of heaven. He specifically focuses on the last part of the celebration, when the bridegroom comes unexpectedly, and he uses that to illustrate the different conditions of people's hearts when he will return in his second coming. So we're going to divide this parable into two parts. First, we have the waiting We see that in the first five verses, the waiting, where Jesus says, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept." Now in verse 1, Jesus says, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to. That word then refers back to the second coming, what he's been talking about the entire chapter before. Jesus says, this is what it's going to be like when I come at my return. Like, it's going to be like ten virgins waiting for a wedding feast. Why ten? Uh, well, reportedly, Talmudic authorities said there were usually ten lamps in a bridal procession. It was the common size of a wedding party. Also, scripturally, the number 10 speaks of fullness or completeness. And we're talking about the fullness of Christ's second coming, the fulfillment of that. So 10, now why 10 virgins? Well, the bride would usually pick chaste young women to be her attendees at her wedding. But the issue isn't the number 10 or the fact that they're virgins so much as it is the issue of oil and lamps. Again, the reason they have lamps is because they never knew when the bridegroom is going to arrive. He could arrive in the morning, it could be in the afternoon, or it could be in the evening. And most often it, was happening, it happened in the evening. So you, ha- you needed to have a lamp with you so that you're ready when the bridegroom comes. And all ten of them, it says, they had lamps or torches. This is the same word that is used in John 18, verse 3, when the soldiers used torches when they came to arrest Jesus in the garden. It's the same word. So these bridesmaids are really carrying like little torches, small ones you would carry when you went on a journey. And by all outward appearances, all ten of these virgins, they look the same. They're all invited to the wedding feast, They all responded to the wedding invitation. Uh, They were all a part of the wedding. They all have a torch in their hand, and they probably, they all wore the same wedding attire, and they're all willing to wait. But the parable points out one key difference. Look again at verses 2 through 4. Five of them were wise, and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. F.F. F. Bruce, a Bible commentator, he noted that the word foolish, it's comparing the word foolish and wise, not bad and good, but prudent and imprudent, thoughtless and thoughtful. By the way, the word foolish, it's where we, in the original language, is where we get our word moron from. So it's the difference between someone who is thoughtless and inattentive. To someone who is thoughtful and attentive and assesses this situation correctly. Because you never know when the groom is going to come. So you need to be ready. So both look the same. Both have torches, but the foolish ones didn't have any oil. And a torch without fuel is useless. That's why they would carry the little jar of oil to refuel. So it's all about the oil, it's all about oil. And what does oil represent in Scripture? Listen, we always have to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. When when it's clear, to understand what Jesus is saying. Over and over again, Scripture refers to oil as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. New life for the believer comes through the birth of the Holy Spirit. Jesus told Nicodemus, unless you are born of the Spirit, you cannot be saved. You must be born again. This oil represents the Holy Spirit that brings new life, salvation. And so what Jesus is bringing out here is that there are those who appear to be followers. They associate with believers. They would never think of saying anything against Jesus. But when Christ returns, it would be revealed that they didn't have Christ burning in their hearts. So the oil represents the changed life that comes by the Holy Spirit that indwells and works in the life of the believer. Jesus is saying there will be some who appear to be born again, but in the end they will be revealed. They will be found out. Jesus had one of his own disciples have that happen. Judas He was a man who walked with Jesus and his disciples for three years. And when Jesus says, one among us will betray me, no one suspected Judas. No one suspected him. That's how well he pulled it off. But in the end, it was revealed. So Jesus brings up one of his recurring themes, something that grieves him more than anything else. It's a person who appears to be a disciple and kind of puts up a front. They put on a mask, what we know as hypocrisy. They put all this on, but they're not believers, and perhaps even deceiving themselves, thinking that they're saved. So here we have this parable of the ten virgins where Jesus is calling us to take inventory of our life to make sure this is not just external, that we're not just externally trying to be Christians. It's not just a church thing, but it's an internal transformation that takes place by faith. Because when Christ returns, it will be revealed and all will know the truth. The torches of the believer, their heart will burn brightly. And those of the unbeliever will be extinguished. So be ready. So here you have ten virgins. Five wise, five foolish. Five with oil, five without oil. Five who are saved, five who are not saved. Verse 5, but while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. Now, when Christ returns, he will be right on time. It might feel like, it might seem like he's delayed, that he's delaying. We look at things in the world today like, how much longer, Lord? How much longer will it be? He will be right on time. And that's that's what they said, you know, in the days of Noah. Remember, Jesus used that illustration and said, His coming will be like the days of Noah. And for 120 years, Noah built an ark and people mocked him. Judgment? What are you talking about judgment? There's no judgment coming. Nothing's going to change until it did, until it rained. And here, while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. Now, this sleep does not represent laziness or unfaithfulness. Why? Because they all slumbered. They all slept. The wise fell asleep, just as the foolish did as well. But the wise ones were prepared to act immediately when they were unexpectedly awakened. The foolish maidens were not prepared. You could say that the sleep of the foolish virgins was, it represents a false assurance, a false confidence. They went to sleep thinking, no worries, no problem in in, in our application. Yeah, no worries. I, I go to church, you know, my family goes to church, my parents are saved, I'm good. That's a false assurance. But the sleep of the wise virgins is a genuine sleep of solid security. They could rest in the Lord. They know they have a relationship with Christ. So if, if they're asleep, they will wake up and they'll be ready. They were ready. But for both, we have the waiting. The waiting. Jesus likens the different conditions of people's hearts prior to his second coming to those waiting for the bridegroom. But then we have the arrival, verse six. And at midnight, a cry was heard, behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Now, obviously it's late, it's midnight. Again, this emphasizes the unexpectedness of his return. And so as the bridegroom approaches the outskirts of the village, they're saying, hey, the bridegroom is coming. And the wedding party, all all the virgins immediately began to prepare their lamps for lighting. But, verse 7, then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. So they're all sleeping, and their lamps had gone out, and they need to trim it, get all the ash out of it, and, and add more oil to light their lamps. But there's a problem. The five foolish virgins realize, I'm out of oil. I don't have any oil. Oh, no. They certainly had time to purchase it ahead of time, Maybe they could have gone back earlier, and, but again, they didn't want to leave because they knew the bridegroom could come at any time, which only emphasizes the fact that they should have been prepared. And they now realize how foolish they were. And you know what? When Jesus Christ returns at his second coming, I believe people will frantically realize the lack of their spiritual preparedness, their lack of being spiritually ready. And some will realize their whole faith was based on knowledge or It was just superficial, that they didn't really have a relationship with him. And these five virgins realized their grave mistake. We're continuing on, verse 8. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you. But go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves." Now, you read that and you might think, man, that's not very nice. Those wise virgins, they're not very kind. Why don't they share? But if they did, there wouldn't be enough for both of them to last. Jesus is teaching us a spiritual principle about salvation. Salvation is non-transferable. You know, it's kind of like airline tickets. You know, you go buy your airline tickets. You can't just, I can't go, I'm going to transfer them to you. It doesn't work that way. Especially, it doesn't work that way, with salvation. Salvation is non-transferable. The message is transferable, and it should be transferable. We're to share our faith with other people. We're to tell others. We're to be the conduits of where we, where we share God's love and his message about who he is and why he came, that he died on the cross for you and for me. We are to do that, but regarding salvation, you can't borrow somebody else's salvation. You can't go to heaven based on someone else's faith. You can't borrow a relationship with God. You have to get your own. You need to be clothed in Christ, not in someone else. So each person must make an individual decision for Jesus Christ. Because you're not going to stand before the Lord and say, Lord, you know my mom, you know, she was an awesome woman of God. She prayed for me when I was a kid. She taught me to pray. She taught me to read the word. She took me to church. She's an awesome woman of God. You won't be able to do that. Our faith is based on an individual's decision for Christ. So my faith is not based on my mom's faith or my dad's faith or my friend's faith or my spouse's faith. It's me. It's all on me making a decision for the Lord. It's me saying, I want a relationship with you, Lord. I need to be clothed in you. Again, the oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Without oil, the wedding party was not ready for the bridegroom. Without the Holy Spirit, no one is ready for the return of Jesus Christ. No one can be a true Christian without the indwelling Holy Spirit. Paul writes in Romans 8 verse 9, Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. That's pretty clear. And so the wise virgins, virgins, they told the foolish ones, no, you need to get your own oil. But at midnight, all the stores are closed. Verse 10, and while they went to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding and the door was shut. The door was shut. Again, this reminds me of the days of Noah. Jesus says, my coming will be like... The days of Noah, for 120 years, Noah said, God is going to judge us because of our evil hearts, so turn, repent, turn your heart toward the Lord. The people blew him off. For 120 years, they had this massive object lesson, this massive ark in the middle of dry ground right in front of them, but they blew it off. Everyone except Noah's immediate family blew him off until the door was shut. God shut the door on the ark, and then that was it. No one else was getting in. Verse 11, afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly I say to you, I do not know you. Now, Jesus knows everyone. He he knows you, He, he knows everything about you, he knows the number of hairs on your head, he knows every cell in your body. He knows the things that you're struggling with in your marriage. He knows the things that you're dealing with in your workplace. He knows the temptations that you have, even temptations that you've given yourself over to. He knows all those things about you, and he still loves you. He still loves you. That's what's always amazing to me. God knows everything about me. He knows things about me no one else knows. He still loves me, and he still loves you. Despite all of that, he knows you. So it's not that he doesn't know you. What Jesus means is that once the door is shut and people start saying "let us in," and Jesus says, "I don't know you," he's saying I don't have a relationship with you, and more to the point, you don't have a relationship with me. I, you know, I know. I've I've learned recently a lot more about Elon Musk. You know, he's in the news quite a bit. He's famous for a lot of things nowadays. You know, I read about him in the news. I've read read about him. I know who he is. I know what he looks like. But if I were to go to the Tesla factory over in Austin and knock on the door and say, hey, I'm here to talk to Elon Musk. I want to go in and have a conversation. You know what they would say? He he would say, I do not know you. (laughs) I'm not going to talk to you. I do not know you. I know things about him, but he doesn't know me. And it's the same way with And it could be that same way with Jesus. He knows you. He wants you to know him. He wants you to know him intimately by saying, Lord, I want to invite you into my life so I can have a relationship with you, where I'm talking with you, where I'm asking for your help and for your guidance in my life. Well, Jesus is saying to the five foolish virgins who are knocking at the door, you you don't have a relationship with me. I don't have a relationship with you. Maybe that's where you are today. You realize that you don't have a relationship with the Lord. Maybe you've been associated with the church. Maybe you've been in and out of churches your whole life, but you've never asked Christ to come into your life to be Lord and Savior. You've never been born again. Listen, he wants to be invited in. He's not going to force his way in. He acknowledges your free will, and he says, let me come in. He desires to come in, but you have to ask him to come in. He wants to have a relationship with you, and he wants you to have a relationship with him. Well, Jesus concludes verse 13, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. The point of the parable is simple, really. Be ready. Be ready. There are some things you can't just leave to the last minute. We all have those things in our to-do list that we put off, like, okay, yeah, I'll get to that tomorrow, next week, or maybe next summer, whatever. You put certain things off. This is not one of them. Certainly not things that have to do with eternal matters. If you put off a decision for Christ, you are, in his words, foolish, moronic. You're playing against the odds because you don't know. You could drop dead tomorrow. You just don't know. And again, in context, we're talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. This all happens at the end of the Great Tribulation. That really doesn't speak to us, at least not now, because we are prior to this time. The next event that we are looking for as his church is the rapture of the church. But guess what? We need to be ready for that. How? Be saved give your life to Christ. Are you ready for Jesus to come for his bride in the rapture? Are you ready or will you be left behind? Now here's the thing, whether the Lord delays his coming for a week or a year or 10 years, 100 years, however long it's going to be, first of all, that's not very long from God's perspective because I know people say, well, you know, the church has been talking about his coming for 2,000 years now. But Peter reminds us in 2 Peter 3, verse 3, saying scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? they are saying, well, we've been hearing it for years. Well, later, 2 Peter 3, verse 8, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. God's perspective, it's only been a couple of days. (laughs) But even if he delays his coming for his church, the reality is we don't have any guarantees that we're going to be here. Because the reality is every single one of us, we're gonna. if we're not raptured, we will die at some point. We're going to pass from this life. But understand, death is not the end of the road. Death is a bend in the road. Because every single person here and every single person on earth will live forever The question is, where? Where will you live out eternity? And Scripture tells us there are only two destinations. There's heaven, and there is a place called hell that Jesus talks about. And both God and the devil have a plan for your destiny. You know, we always say, well, God has a wonderful plan for your life. He does. But guess what? The devil has a terrible plan for your life. God has a wonderful plan for you because he loves you. The devil has a terrible plan for your life because he hates you. Why does he hate you? Because you were created in God's image. And here's the thing. The devil's destiny, it's already sealed. He is going to hell. In fact, hell was made for him and his fallen demons. But the devil wants to deceive as many people as possible and take as many people as possible with him. Why? Misery loves company. That's what he's doing. And he wants to do that because he hates God. He hates us because we're created in his image. He can't stop God, but he can hurt God by taking people that God loves to a place that God doesn't want us to go. So listen, don't let the enemy enemy of your soul make you a pawn for what he wants to do, trying to hurt God and take advantage of your life Whenever God wants to give you new life, he wants to give you abundant life here and now, a new beginning, he wants to give you forgiveness. Forgiveness. We think, well, how much forgiveness? Anything you've ever thought about, anything you've ever done. And the older you get, you know, the more that compounds. There's a lot more stuff going on in your your mind that you think about. God will forgive you of all of it. And he says he'll throw it into the depths of the ocean or as far as the east is from the west, never to be remembered again. That is incredible forgiveness. And on top of that, he says, I'll I'll give you peace. I'll give you peace in your life about all the things that you have to deal with. I will give you joy in your life. I'll give you an abundance of life and then the promise of eternal life. And then when that bend in the road comes, you will come with me to eternity. You will come into the Father's house. And he'll say, that's when he'll say, oh, I know you, you come on in. Come on in. So the question is, are you ready for eternity? You can be ready by asking Jesus Christ into your life. That's the only way to be ready. And you could have the assurance today by asking him to come into your life right now. And if you're saying, David, I want that. I need that. I need to do that. How, how do I go about it? Well, it's pretty simple. It's as simple as ABC, and I'll walk you through this. A, admit that you're a sinner. That's not hard to do. I mean, none of us have a problem saying I'm not perfect. And it's true. We are not perfect. We are far from it. We miss the mark. That's the word sin. One of the definitions of sin is missing the mark. Uh, It's missing the mark of God's best for you and living the perfect life. So yeah, we are all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. But we have to admit that we're sinners, confess that and turn from from it and repent. Acts chapter three, verse 19. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. So, I'm admitting I'm a sinner, and then I'm turning around. I'm repenting. I'm turning around. And as I'm turning, that leads to the B, which is believe. Because I'm, I'm turning to Jesus. I'm believing in Jesus. Acts chapter 10, verse 9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Believe. It's placing your faith in Jesus Christ, trusting that he is who he says he is, that he is God, that he died on the cross in your place, that he paid your debt when he died on the cross, that he was raised from the dead, and that you can have everlasting life. So admit, believe, and one last thing, it has to do with commitment. It's not just believing facts in your mind and making a mental ascent. It's making a commitment To Jesus Christ. It's saying, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are God. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins, and I believe you rose from the dead. And because of that, I'm turning over the reins of my life to you. I'm surrendering my life to you. I'm committing my life to you. Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, verse 23 If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. To to deny yourself, that means to die to yourself. To take up your cross, that means to die to yourself. And to follow me and do what I do, that is a real sign of being transformed by the Holy Spirit. So there's the the A, B, and C. Now, before we close, I I want you to notice what I did not say this parable represents. Because there are certain parts of Christianity, parts, certain denominations and so forth that, that maybe overanalyze or read into a parable things that aren't there. First, I did not say that the foolish virgins without the oil, that does not represent a believer who had the Holy Spirit but was empty in that moment. Meaning, a believer who wasn't living in the Spirit the moment that they died or when Jesus returned. If that shocks you, there are people who would say that, like uh, my wife, for example. When she first got saved in the group she was in, she asked the question, "You know, well, what if I, you know, say a bad word right before I die in a car crash, or what if, what if something this happens and I'm I'm not living in the Lord at that moment? Well, that's too bad. No, wrong. That's not the heart of God. If you have trusted Christ for salvation, His Spirit is in you." indwelling you, and then you were sealed by the Holy Spirit, and Jesus holds you in his hands, and he will never let go. He will never let go, and you can rest in that assurance. So if you've trusted Christ, that's that's just messed up theology. But if you haven't trusted Christ, you can have that assurance today. So let's do that. Let's pray. Let's bow our heads and pray together.